Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Kristen. I think she's got a D group meeting to go to. Let's get our Bibles out and open to Acts 27. You know, guys, I sat there thinking that we'd sit together, and boy, they saw me on their spot, and they just bolted right over to my spot. Man, I just got rejected. I'm telling you, man. Oh, man, I'm telling you. Now, I'm going to confess to you that I had absolutely no idea what the weather was going to do when I named this sermon Storm Surge, okay? That's just the providence of God, I'm telling you. We're going to talk tonight about a flood and a shipwreck and everything else, so it ought to be perfect. Acts 27, amen. So we'll, we're in our ninth part of this series about the life of Paul, and it's certainly been a blessing to go through this, and I'm grateful for Pastor Matt and for the role he's played in it, and certainly we're indebted to Charles Swindoll and all of his wonderful writings on the life of the Apostle Paul. It's been such a rich study for us, and we're grateful. Let's pray tonight and ask God's blessing on our time in His Word. Father, we want to thank You tonight for the blessing of Your Scripture. We thank You, Jesus, for living and abiding through your word in us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit and for his power and role in what happens when we study your word. And so we pray tonight that you'll give us ears to hear, minister through it into our hearts, that we might be transformed and made more like Jesus. We give you credit, praise, and honor in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 27 is the very familiar and famous passage about the entire chapter records the events of the Apostle Paul in his shipwreck as he is uh, trying to make his way to Rome. And uh, we're got, we've got a ton of text to work through tonight. Let's begin reading in verse 1. We'll just read a while, then I'll talk a while, then we'll read a little bit, talk a little bit. You know the drill. Acts 27, verse 1, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some prisoners, uh, one named Julius, a centurion uh, of the Augustan regiment, so entered the ship, the Adramidium ship, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus of Macedonia of Thessalonica was with us, and the next day we landed in Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, the city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. Now we're going to pull a map up. I want you to look at this map for a second so we can get an idea of what's going on. See right here is where Paul begins his journey. And so you can see that because of the time of year, he's not going to make a straight shot across over here to Rome, but they're going to go up the coastline and go around Cyprus. They get to Lycia right there, and that's where they switch vessels. Now, you have to understand that uh, when they switch vessels there, they get on a 
ship carrying grain. And so what we know is that that is not the kind of ship you want to be traveling on because basically a cargo ship in those days was shaped like a barge. And it's not the kind of thing you want to be on when you're trying to sail across the open ocean, especially in the wintertime when there's a tendency for the weather to get very bad. And so they get on this Alexandrian ship from there and begin their way towards Italy. Verse 7 says, When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, then the wind was not permitting us to proceed. So we sailed under the shelter of Crete to Salmon, and then passing with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now you see Fair Haven is right there. And hopefully you can see my green dot. That's where they get to. Well, when they get to here, now they had to fight those winds all the way down the Mediterranean Sea till they got right here to Crete. When they got on the backside of Crete, they find this little inlet called Fairhaven where they can rest. And so the thinking would be, hey, let's, let's try to stay here. Now notice in verse 9 what happens. And when much time had been spent... The sailing was now dangerous because uh, the fast was already over. So Paul's basically saying that it's November, it's the wintertime, and one ought not be sailing. Paul advised them in verse 10, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. So Paul is saying, listen, we're in fair haven. Let's stay here, for goodness sake. It was already brutal enough just to get to where we are. Let's just wait here for the winter and then move on when the weather changes. Verse 11, Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things Paul spoke. So the, the owner of the ship wants to get the cargo where it needs to go. He wants to make money. He's got more of an idea, so he decides that they're going to keep going. And though Paul warns not to, they decide to go anyway. So verse 12 says, And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, then the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, opening towards the southwest and northwest, and, the, and they could winter there. Now, if you look closely at Crete right there in the middle, um, right here, if you can see that dot right there, is Fairhaven. Now you see what this is right here? There's Phoenix. So basically what their intention is to do is to test the waters and see what they can do. It's 40 miles from Fairhaven to Phoenix. So they, they figure if they just sail along the coastline for 40 miles, if things get too shaky, they'll just pull into Phoenix and they'll just bed down there for the winter and everything will be fine. Now you may have uh, this map in the back of your Bibles, I'm not sure. But that was a fatal mistake because the minute that they set sail from Fairhaven, that's when trouble came. Verse 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they thought, you know what, the weather's good today. Let's just make this little 40-mile jaunt right across the coastline. We'll stay where we can see the land. Everything will be good. So they sailed close to Crete. But not long after, a, temp a tempestuous headwind arose. Now it's got this name, the Euroclidian. This, uh, it just means nor'easter. 
That's what that is. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of the island called Claudia, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And when we had taken it on board, we used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest that we should run aground in Sirtis, they struck sail, so they were driven. So basically, here's what happens. You see, you see how the, when they leave Fairhaven, they swoop out here into the middle of the ocean? The wind blew them offshore. There was nothing they could do. And they end up out here in the middle of the Mediterranean, lost at sea in this terrible storm, and there's nothing they could do thinking one minute they were just going to ease about 40 miles down the shoreline, and now they're in a serious situation. Now, if you think about ways to die, if you think about things that are scary, if you think about uh, dreaded situations, being on a ship in a storm in the middle of the ocean has got to be high up there on the, you know, situations you don't want to be in. Now, if any of you have spent any amount of time offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, then undoubtedly you have gotten yourself into a situation because the, the weather is so unpredictable. There's so many times you can get in trouble. I mean, I've been in multiple storms out in the Gulf. And, you know, quite frankly, there were times when uh, it didn't look real good. I at least knew that uh, we weren't in shark-infested waters, at least not to the degree that I was fearful of that. It was just more that I'd be bobbing out in the water for days on end until somebody came to find me. The good thing for me is that I've spent my whole entire life on the water, and I've never been seasick. I don't know that I can be seasick. My children don't get seasick. It, maybe it's some hereditary gene that we have. But I can be bobbing out in the most horrible water for hours upon end, and I don't get sick. But I'm always on the boat with somebody who does. And though I don't know exactly what that feels like, based on what it looks like, I don't want to find out. People say that there's two stages to seasickness. The first stage is that you get so sick that you, you want to die. And then the second stage is that you begin to get fearful that you won't die. I mean, you know, it's almost like you're, you're, you're so sick you can't even believe how sick you are. And then you get dehydrated on top of that and, you're, and it just will not quit. Now they're out there for 14 days. And you got to understand, I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is on a, a boat with a giant mast and a mainsail. They, uh, these ships didn't have rudders, as we would know what a rudder is. They, they would have two openings in the, in the back of the boat where they would have two paddles that come out. And so somebody, would, those two guys would have to work those paddles to steer those boats along. I mean, this is as crude of a sailing vessel as you can imagine. And they're out in the open ocean, lost at sea for 14 days. Now, as they're out there, Paul has information that nobody else on the boat really has. You see, Paul is 
certainly uncomfortable, certainly miserable, certainly uh, annoyed because he has told them over and over and over, hey, we, you know, we ought not do this. We should have stayed here. We should have, you know, not uh, left Fairhaven. And they didn't listen to him, so I'm sure that that made him even more annoyed. But nonetheless, there he is lost out there. But he already has information. Now, back in Acts 23, Paul was in prison in Jerusalem, and he got a visit while he was in prison. I believe it's Acts 23.11 should come up on the screen where there it is. That's the Lord Jesus the following night. The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So see, Paul knows that he's going to make it to Rome. Nobody else on the ship really knows that. By the way, if you want to, after the service, you can talk to Sherry Marks about what it's like to be uh, on a sinking vessel out in the Gulf because uh, she sank and floated around on a, uh, on a, I believe it was an ice chest, right? Yeah. So uh, one day I was making an illustration and starting point, and she was in my class, and I was making an illustration about drowning at sea. I, I'm assuming Greg was the captain of this vessel, so you may think twice before you go out in the Gulf with him. I'm not sure, but she has been actually literally on a boat that sank in the Gulf. So there you have it. So Paul already knows that he's going to make it to Rome. So he has this absolute promise, okay, this is something you need to understand, that he's going to get there. But his only promise now is that he's going to get there. There's no promise regarding how he would get there or that it would be easy to get there. It certainly isn't going to be easy, but... Uh, all he knows is that he will get there. Now, if you think about twice, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 8 and Matthew 14, there's stories about the disciples in a boat in a storm. Once they're in a boat, Jesus is sleeping and the storm blows up and he gets up and calms the wind and the seas. The other time, they're in a boat in a storm, fearing for their life, and Jesus comes walking up and they think it's a ghost. But what do those two times have in common? How did the disciples both times end up in a boat in the storm? They obeyed the Lord Jesus. Jesus sent them specifically both times into the storm. And the point is, the, the underlying point that's, that's oftentimes missed in both of those stories is that had they not been obedient to Christ, they wouldn't have been in the storm which is very important for us to remember. Because oftentimes when we find ourselves in a storm, we immediately come to the wrong conclusion that we somehow made a wrong turn or missed God's will or we wouldn't be in a storm. Where do we get that idea? No. If you endeavor to follow God, you are going to find yourself in the face of many storms. Is that not what the Bible teaches? Yes, it is. And Jesus will purposely send us into storms to make us stronger and better and more effective at whatever it is he's trying to do in our lives. You know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about Acts 27 and I was thinking about how really everything that I believe about the Lord 
is anchored in my absolute assurance of God's total sovereignty. I mean, I literally bring everything back. Everything that I know about God is anchored in His sovereignty. Now, that being true, at the same time, there have been times in my life where, quite frankly, Lisa and I weren't sure we were going to make it through. I don't mean that me and her weren't going to make it through. I mean that us together weren't going to make it through. Now, do you see the contradiction there? On one hand, I absolutely positively know that God is sovereign. And on yet on the other hand, there have been times where life was so difficult, situations were so hard that were pressing in on us, that we frankly weren't sure we we're going to make it through. Now you see, if God is sovereign, and I'm in a storm that I don't know that I'm going to make it through, then God must have placed me or allowed me to be in the storm that I don't know that I'm going to make it through. But the reality is, is that we're still human. I'm still human. And I still can find myself in a situation so difficult, so uh, heartbreaking and agonizing that I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Now, here's what I want us to do. I'm gonna, I want to give you four anchors that are in the rest of this text. Four anchors that you can connect your life to in a storm that will hold you when the wind is and the waves are raging around you and maybe it seems as if even if God is utterly and completely sovereign you're not sure that you're going to make it through the first anchor is this the anchor of promise the anchor of promise now look at verse 20 you're going to have to keep your bibles open because we're going to stay here all night look at verse 20 now Luke, the physician who's recording this event, he's on the ship with Paul. He says, now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now, it's easy to read that, but it's another thing to just pause for a moment and imagine that for 14 days you're out in the wilderness it's dark, it's overcast. At this time in history, there's no GPS, there's no cell phones, there's no two-way radios, there's no sonar, there's no radar. The only thing you have is to be able to look up at the stars and the constellations and be able to see which direction you're going. And for 14 days, they see nothing. And they're out there just bobbing in the middle of nowhere. And understand, they've taken the... The, the ropes and the cables and wound them under the ship and through the winch to hold it bound together to keep it from just coming apart in the seas. And then Luke says, all hope, all hope that we might be saved was given up. You see, when all hope has been abandoned, Hope is the thing that will 
will cause us to hang on. Hope is the, is the most powerful weapon against utter and complete defeat. You see, when all hope is gone, we will even lose the will to live. Verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. I told you he was aggravated. Verse 22, And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told to me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now there's 276 men aboard this vessel. I know that because it tells us that later in the text. That's a lot of guys. A lot of these guys are prisoners heading to Rome. Most of the guys that are on this ship are going to end up uh, being um, lion treats for Nero in the, uh, you know, in the games that he would uh, have in the giant Colosseum. And so it wasn't a good future for these guys. This is a rough group of people that we have on board this ship, and it's a lot of them. And, and these guys aren't believers. These guys don't know God. These guys don't pray to God. They don't, they don't know anything. And suddenly Paul stands up, whom they've taken note of, ignored everything that he said up until this point, and he stands up and he says to them, listen, we've been out here for 14 days. Everybody's hungry. You're tired. We're afraid. Now, let's make no bones about it. I told you we shouldn't leave, but now we left, and now we're in this mess. But the God whom I serve has assured me that though we will lose the boat, we will not lose any lives, that everyone will make it, that we will at some point run aground on a certain island. Now, I just wonder, how would you feel if you were one of the 275 other guys that were on the boat. It, I mean, that's good news, kind of. Right? I mean, it is good news. Let's don't uh, miss the point here. It's good news that everyone's going to survive, but barely. In other words, we're not just going to, the storm's not just going to go away, and we're not just going to end up where we want to be. We're just going to live. You ever been there? Where the only assurance you had in the midst of your situations and circumstances is that you're going to live? I mean, you ever notice how oftentimes with God, His promises, the wonderful and sure 
are not everything we'd hoped for, but they're sufficient to keep us pressing on. That God gives us just what we need, but not oftentimes what we want. In other words, I think that every follower of Jesus ought to have some mechanism where you record uh, promises in Scripture so that when a storm comes, when your life falls apart around you, when you're out at sea for 14 days and you can't see the light of day and you don't know where you are and you don't know if you're going to make it through, you have something that you have put together previously for just such a time as this. I personally call those fighter verses. I keep those lists of fighter verses on every possible conceivable topic you can think, and I use them to personally edify myself through struggles and trials and situations that I face. Maybe you would call it a a promise book where you would just begin to record. Every time you come across a promise in Scripture, you would record it. Now, if you were OCD like I am, then you would have them broken down into various areas, different sort of topical things. If you're You know, you should do this on your own. It will be more meaningful if it belongs to you. But, you know, if you're just uh, too lazy or feel too insufficient to do that, then I would suggest at the end of the service you walk over there and talk to Dale Clark because my guess would be that he has multiple pages of the promises of God stored in his files that he could print out and he could hand to you. Because he does that on every topic under the sun. Which I think is extraordinarily wise. You should have God's promises somewhere where you can get a handle on them for when you're going to need them. Because struggles are going to come. And you need to understand the way the promises of God work. For example, in Luke chapter 12, here's what the Bible says. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid. And this is Jesus speaking. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. Now I want you to think about this passage for a second. Jesus says, he says, now don't fear the person who can merely kill the body. He didn't say, don't be afraid because no one's going to kill you. He didn't say that. You see, he's not giving you everything you would want in that moment. He's saying, don't be afraid of someone who can only kill the body. So he's saying, hey, it may not, it may not be smooth sailing. It may be difficult. And then he goes on and says, are not five sparrows sold for a copper coin, for two copper coins, and are not one of them uh, forgotten by God? The very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, every time I read that, I'm reminded of the way God's promises work. This is, to me, the same thing as Jesus telling Paul, you're going to make it to Rome, or the angel coming to Paul and saying, listen, you're going to make it to Rome, and everyone's going to live, but you're going to run aground on an island. Listen, that's a great promise. But it certainly doesn't mean that everything's going to go smooth. 
Now, isn't that how the Bible is? In other words, Isaiah 43. These verses will come up on the screen. The prophet Isaiah, but now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. See, you know this is about to be good, right? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Praise the Lord. Here we go. We're ready to move. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, isn't that good? Except you do realize you're going through the fire. You do realize you're going through the flood. You realize you're going through the water. See, God doesn't say, don't worry, I'm going to take all the fire away. Don't worry, I'm going to take all the flood away. No, that's not what he says. He says, you're going to walk through it, but I'm going to protect you in it. He's telling Paul, you're going to survive this storm. You're going to get to your eventual destination. The people that are with you are going to live, but it's going to be hard getting there. It's going to, there's no telling what you're going to have to go through getting there. Now, does that bother you? I hope not. Because it's the goodness of God. God doesn't do anything for us that's not good for us. Everything that God does in our lives is to draw us closer to Him or to make us more like Him. He never, ever does anything in your life or my life to push us away from Him. He's always drawing us closer to Him. You know, we, we sing this song uh, sometimes, the praise song, Your Love Never Fails. And when we sing that song, well, we love that. Your love never fails. Boy, we like that, huh? Because it never fails. That's just good, isn't it? But here's what the song says. And when the oceans rage, I do not have to be afraid because I know that you love me. The wind is strong and the water's deep, but I'm not alone here in the open seas because your love never fails. The chasm is far too wide. I never thought I'd reach the other side, but your love never fails. That's right out of Isaiah 43. And then, and then everybody's favorite chorus goes to, but you make all things work together for my good. You see? We could sing it, sing it, sing it, but we don't want to live it, live it, live it. But see, God's using that. He's using that in the lives of these men. He's using that in the Apostle Paul's life, just like he uses it in our life. And listen, we need to understand the anchor of promise. And here's what you need to understand about the anchor of promise. The promise is not that he's going to eradicate your circumstances, though he may do that. But more than likely, the promise is that God's going to walk faithfully with you through the circumstances that you wish so desperately would go away. See, now that would have been a good place for you to say amen. amen. Because here's what you're going to do. A storm is going to blow into your life. I'm not talking about a little, a, a little rain shower. I'm not talking about a little setback. I'm talking about... A 14-day storm where you don't know if you're going to make it. 
where someone you love just got snatched out of your life, where some situation that you never dreamed you would be in, you're in, where the, it's the most painful, heart-wrenching grief you could imagine feeling. In that moment, you need to understand the operation of God's promise. Because if you're looking for God to just take all of the, all of the, the, the circumstance away from you, that's probably not what's going to happen. And you know what will keep you grounded in the reality of God and how He works? If you have the promises written down. Because if you're just going off your own ideas, what are you going to dream up? Oh God, just, just make the storm go away. And then just make a motor like a, a 250 Johnson show up on the back of this mug and let's just motor on down the road to, to Rome. That's what you're going to think. But God's like, no, I'm working in the storm. What I want you to do is go through the storm and trust me that I'm with you and that I'm sovereign. That's the anchor of promise. The second anchor is the anchor of community. Look at verse 27. Now when the 14th night had come, man, they are struggling. As we were driven up and down by the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near to some land. So they took soundings and they found it to be 20 fathoms and then they had gone a little further and they took soundings and they saw that it was 15 fathoms. And so here's what we know. It's getting shallower, right? And verse 29, then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Oh, hey, it's like a foxhole. Things get bad enough, pagans even start praying. Now, Paul's been hanging around talking to him, and he stood up and he said, now, the God that I serve has said we're going to make it. Now, here's what all these, you know, rabble-rousers on the ship said. I believe in that God. I'm in on that. Oh, we're all going to survive this? Okay, I'm in. I mean, what other option do they have? So now... They prayed for day to come. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, remember they had struggled getting the skiff up there and getting it tied down. Now they're letting it into sea. Now look at what it says in the end of verse 30. Under the pretense of putting out anchors from the bow. Huh. In other words, here's what they're doing. The sailors, the, the people who are skilled at at uh, being on the ocean and th nautical things, they're like, so here's what we're going to do. It's getting shallower. We know they're probably about to hit some rocks, so let's let the skiff down. We're going to tell them we're going to let some anchors out, and then we're going to skiff ourselves right on out of here and try to find that land because they're about to hit the rocks. So they're under this pretense. They're trying to fool them. But... Paul ain't going for that. Verse 31, then Paul says to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. <laughs> hey, he said, look here, partner, you let these guys get in the skiff, you ain't going to make it. So what do you think the centurion and the soldiers said? Back on the ship, buddy. Put the skiff away. So look at what they do. 
verse 32, Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and let the skiff fall off. They cut it off and said, let that sucker go. Now you can see this belief that's setting in. Now you can see that, that uh, the, the soldiers and the centurion who wouldn't listen to Paul before, in other words, he said, hey, let's stay in Fairhaven. Nah, we ain't doing that. Now they so respect and believe what Paul's saying that they cut the ropes and let the skiff go, which was a bold move of trust. I mean, that's one of the few lifelines that they have. And we're talking about the anchor of community, and I want you to see here that you see what these men are showing us? These men under pretense of putting the skiff in the water? You know what our natural tendency is in a terrible raging storm? When our life gets into a terrible raging storm, what is our natural tendency? To run. We just want to bail. We just want to run away. Do you know what your flesh tells you in a storm? Your flesh says you need to run. You need to, you need to separate yourself from everybody. You need to get yourself off on your own. You need to find an escape route. You need to get out of wherever you are. And you need to run to something that's going to bring you comfort. You need to run to some substance that's going to numb you away when life gets too hard to handle. You need to run to some place where people aren't going to ask you any questions. You want to run. You want to run. We see it all the time. We see it all the time. People, when, when the wheels come off of their life, you see, here's what you notice. You don't see the wheels go off. You look around one day and they're gone. And you're thinking, hey, where's so-and-so? You know, they hadn't been in Sunday school in three or four weeks. And so then you call them and they don't answer. And you call them and they don't answer. And then you go over to the house and knock on the door. And they come to the door and they look terrible. And you go, well, what's going on with you? And they say, oh, man, this, things are really bad, you know. My wife left me or this happened or I lost my job or I found out I got cancer or whatever. Now, you're thinking to yourself, now, wait a second. Wouldn't the sensible thing to do when you found out you had cancer or when your wife left you or when your, your daughter ran away from home or when your, your boss called you in his office and laid you off would be to run to the community that you're in? Wouldn't the sensible thing to do to run to the people who love you and care for you? But what does the flesh want you to do? What does the enemy tell you to do? Run away. Get alone. Alienate yourself. Separate yourself. Get to where no one's going to ask you anything. No one's going to... Listen, it's the exact opposite of what we ought to do. You better understand that in a storm, you need to have some kind of handle on the promises of God, and you better anchor yourself to community. Because if you isolate yourself, you're doomed. You're doomed. You are 100% doomed. If there's ever a time that you and I need support and care of our brothers and sisters in Christ, it is in the midst of the storm. Let's try this again. If ever there's a time in your life that you need your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is in the midst of the storm. I mean, that is so important for you to understand. Have you, I love this quote. I have absolutely no idea who said it, but it sure is brilliant. 
This quote that says, man is the only creature who runs faster when we lose our way. It's the truth. We literally run faster when we're lost. We will run away faster than we will ever run to. It's the craziest thing about our nature. It is the exact opposite of what we ought to do. Listen, you and I can never make it on our own ever. You understand that? Ever. How am I so certain of that? Because God didn't design you that way. Everything about the gospel is to tell you, teach you, confirm to you that you can't make it on your own. Let me ask you a question. Can you get to heaven on your own? Negative. Is there any chance you can get to heaven on your own? Negative. You must humble yourself by the grace of God and beg and plead for Him to save you or you have no hope. The very essence of the gospel is you need help. I need help. Where we get this lone ranger, I can do it on my own attitude, is beyond me, but it is not in the Scripture. You need to anchor yourself to community. I am so positive of this, so convinced of this. I've seen this play out a million times in a million different ways. When I look at a situation in a person's life, I can equate how rapid their reformation or their recovery or their restoration or whatever you want to call it, the path through the storm, I can equate the speed at which they will move through the storm and back into a healthy place. It is directly proportionate to the quality and health of their community. Directly proportionate to the quality and health of their community. So, if, if you're in community, but it's shallow community, then you're going to struggle. But that's better than no community. If you're in community and it's solid community, it's going to do you wonders. Let, let me explain this to you. You just open your eyes and you will see this. Just all of you, when I say this, you'll go, yep, that's a fact. You show me a person whose life is falling apart. Whatever the situation is. I'm talking about major calamity. Now, if they are in a solid, Christ-centered, God-honoring marriage, it will amaze you at what they can endure, what they can go through, and what they can recover from. Because there is no more powerful weapon against the storms of life, the discouragement of life, the hurt and the loss of hope than to be in a, an awesome, amazing, God-centered marriage. Right? Yes, you know that's a fact. Then you just start whittling it down from there. And you just start looking at situations that you've all seen and known and gone through. And you ask yourself... Who, who are the people that you've seen go through excruciating circumstances and come out flourishing on the other side? And I promise you, they are in amazing, 
community. You show me somebody who tends to gravitate towards foolish people, and they're going to languish in the storm and languish in the storm. It's an anchor. Anchor of promise. Anchor of community. Number three, the anchor of nourishment. So when you're in a storm, I mean when it's bleak. Verse 33, and as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your, for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. I know there's some of y'all in here like that. It is my favorite verse right there. And there's some of y'all in here going, man, that ain't true. God let me down on that. Right? All right. I'm just saying it's right there in Scripture. Verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and they also took food for themselves. Now let's get the scene. Has the storm let up? No. Are they having a little celebration picnic because finally they woke up, the sun came up, the storm laid down, everything got good, so let's get the picnic basket out and eat us a little, you know, sandwich, some Vienna sausages, and drink some Kool-Aid. That ain't what happened. No. Listen, it's still bleak. It's still raging. They're still just as lost as they've ever been. Nothing's changed. And all of a sudden, Paul gets up. Now, remember, they were praying for daybreak, hoping that we just had some guys try to make a jailbreak. Then they're praying for daybreak. Then Paul gets up. Now, imagine there's 175 men on here. Crew, everything. He says, now, look here. You've gone 14 days without food. We got a little bit of food left. Let's, let's stop, pray, thank God for this food, and eat together. Does it seem a little strange to you, the timing of this? What is the... Listen, how many, of these, how many of these men on this ship have ever, ever, one time prayed before they ate a meal? I mean, how many of them, they're, they're like, what is with this guy? Like, what? I've never seen anybody like this before. And he says, now we're going to dig out the little bit of food we have left. And we're going to eat it. Now, what, wonder, what, is, what is Scripture trying to instruct us here about this anchor? What is our tendency in a storm? Let's back up. Let's use a, a literal storm. I learned this lesson crystal clear after Katrina. Everybody bails out of here. Everybody's gone. I come back. I'm trying to, you know, I, I come out here to the church. I'm trying to figure out what's going on, what works, what doesn't work, what's flat, what's not flat. And uh, it's like a ghost town. And slowly people start to, you know, turn up. Meanwhile, I'm trying to 
get everywhere I can to locate people's houses, to find people that I don't know where they are, to see if they're okay, and this, that, and the other. And so through this whole process, and as more people began to come, and more people began to, you know, then aid started to come in, and relief started to make it in. And so pretty soon, not by any design that anybody had, me and some of you end up running this Basically, this shelter out of the fellowship hall. We've got some food, and we've got some, some medicine, and we've got some necessities and some water, and people are coming there, and, and, and we, we get a little bit of gas, and we put it in the vans, and we start trying to bring help to people. And so little by little, in the midst of this storm, here's what happens. Without understanding what's going on, my family's still in Florida, I'm going seven days a week, 15, 16, 17, 18, 20 hours a day, no sleep. I mean, who wants to sleep? It's so hot and horrible. There's nowhere you can get comfortable. Just going, 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 going. And then at some point, I just begin to crash. I begin to realize that in my fervor to help people, I have forsaken myself. And I can't think clearly. I don't, I don't, I can't process information. I haven't slept more than two or three hours at a time in, you know, a week and a half. And I'm just exhausted, emaciated. All my pants are falling off. I got my, my belt are on the tightest loop they can go. Man, I miss that now. And so here we are. You didn't have to laugh at that. See, you won't amen nothing, but you'll laugh at my fat joke. Ain't right. You see, in a storm, our tendency is to get very self-reliant. It's to get very geared up and focused on what needs to be done and how it needs to be done and what we need to do and all these other things and to the neglect of ourselves. I think what Paul is teaching us here is this, is that you know what? When you're in a storm, I'm, I'm talking about y'all, I'm talking about Bad stuff. I'm looking around the room. I'm like, I've, I've rode some of these out with some of y'all. Bad stuff. You still, you know, you, you still need to sleep. You know that, right? And when you lay in bed and you're so tired, but your eyes are so open because you're so consumed with grief over the pain that you're feeling and you can't close your eyes and you can't rest and you can't sleep. And, there, and people who care about you are telling you you need to eat something, but you have no appetite and you don't eat. And I think Paul's saying, listen, when you're in a storm, if you're a follower of God, you need to recognize that you still need to nourish yourself because it's a reminder that, listen, you're not invincible. You're not Superman or Superwoman. You and me have a terrible tendency to become way too self-reliant. To think of ourselves as way too capable of toughing it out and gritting it out and getting it done. And I'm going to tell you something. In our culture, that sounds really great. But it's sin. It's sin. Anytime 
that we begin to think that we have enough fortitude, we have enough grit, we have enough determination that we can get through a situation, we have abandoned our position before God and abandoned our submission before God and certainly diminished our trust in God. That is not a spiritual position. A spiritual position is to remember that you know what? Though it is a dire situation, though it is a crushing blow, though my bones ache within me, I still need God's help. I still need to rest. I still need to eat and I still need to slow down and I still need to function the way God designed me to function. Paul, in the middle of a storm, is saying grace. And he's pulling out. It's got to be the little bit of... My guess is that this is the little bit of food that they had left. And the reason why... I mean, they're, they're obviously starving. But the reason they're not eating is because they feel like it's all they've got left. So they're going to ration it out. And Paul gets it out and says, listen. We need to just eat it. God's going to be faithful. And so he gets it out. It can't be anything good. And they eat it. They give thanks for it. And then they eat together. Verse 37. And then in all there were 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Remember they, we, we said that they were on a cargo ship carrying wheat. So they began to throw all the wheat overboard. Now... They've been out there for 14 days and they hadn't done this yet. But now all their food's gone. Their stomachs are full. They've prayed. I mean, you could just see things changing. Verse 39. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land. But they observed that there was a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship in if possible. And they let go of the anchors and they left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes... They hoisted the mainsail to the wind and headed for the shore. So basically, this is like a kamikaze mission. They see this bay and they see this land and they've sort of adopted the reality of what Paul has told them. They've thrown everything overboard and they're like, I mean, nowhere else would sailors do this. I mean, they're going to try to save the ship. But hey, there's no skiff. There's no plan B. They're like, whatever Paul says is probably what's going to happen. And so they just go on this kamikaze mission right for the shore. Which leads us to this fourth and final anchor. We got the anchor of promise, of community, of nourishment, and then finally the anchor of reality. You see, they're facing the reality that they're in. And they just head for the shore. Now look at what happens in verse 41. By striking a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the bow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So don't get the idea that things have calmed down and leveled out or they're not perilous. This may be the most perilous moment of the whole entire journey because now there's no turning back. I mean, once you put the sail up in a storm, you basically have sold out to the mercy of the wind. And here they go into these rocks and they run aground and the back of the ship just begins to 
fall apart and just be obliterated by the waves. So everyone's crammed up at the front of the, the ship trying to, you know, stay afloat. Verse 42, and the soldiers, they had a plan. And their plan was to kill all the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. But the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. So the ship is being blown into pieces. It's sitting on the rocks. It's do or die time. I mean, I don't know how much experience you have in the ocean. I'm just going to clue you in. This is my area, okay? All these uh, biblical stories about farming analogies and all this kind of stuff, man, I'm completely outnumbered to you. This is my wheelhouse. When you're in the ocean, the one place you never want to be is the rocks because once you get to the rocks, you are in trouble because the waves don't stop. Coral is like razor blades. They're up on this reef. The reef is slicing everything to pieces. The waves are coming. The ship is slowly falling apart. The centurion looks around and says, ask one question. Who can swim? Everyone who can swim, jump overboard. Now, that's a tough call. Because I've been in situations in the ocean where I got either sucked up in a rip current or whatever the case may be, and I got off course somewhere I didn't want to be, and then the waves pushed me in, and there was nothing but rocks, me and rocks, and somehow I had to get through that. And quite honestly, you don't know if you're going to survive. And for sure, you're going to be bleeding all over the place by the time you uh, get to safety. There's barnacles. Everything there is to hurt you. Jump. So all the men who can swim start bailing overboard. Now as much courage as that takes, what is the look on the remaining guy's eyes like? What's their facial expression? Here I am in this situation, and my mama didn't teach me how to swim, man. I mean, I got a major problem. And he says, okay, the rest of y'all, grab a plank and bail off. Grab a, a piece of the ship. Grab anything that floats and get off. Because if you stay here, you're going to die. Now, it takes an incredible amount of faith to bail off of that. But here, they, they're facing the reality of the situation they're in. And look at the, the, the last verse of 44. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. 276 men got on board. 276 men embarked on this journey. And 276 men somehow floated up, swam up, got their way up onto land on the island of Malta. Was it easy? No. Was it scary? Yes. 
Were there multiple times they thought they were going to die for sure? Absolutely. Were there times that they were so difficult and so hard that they weren't sure they were going to make it through? A hundred percent. But here's what that last statement says. God is always faithful. What did he promise? He didn't promise the storm would go away. He didn't promise that it was going to be easy. He didn't promise that you were going to feel like you could make it. He promised that you would survive. And who survived? Everybody survived, just like God promised. And let me tell you something about God. Every single time, every single time in your life, my life, and everybody's life who's ever lived and trusted God, that's exactly how it works out. God's promise never falls short. His exact promise to the exact degree that he said is exactly the way it's going to happen. 100% every single time. So then why do we struggle? What is our problem? We don't like the anchor of reality. We want the anchor of our fantasy. But the Bible is calling us to the reality that you're in. And here's the deal. When you're in a storm, and you've got your fighter verses, or you've got your book of promises, and you're connected to your community, and all, you've got all these anchors laid out, when you get, to the, you get to the pivotal moment in the storm, you're going to have to engage in the process. You see, just like you can't go without nourishment, you can't get to the the pinnacle of the storm and just lay back and go, well, God promised I was going to live, so I'm just going to chill out and see what happens. See, God is, you got to engage in what God's doing. I'm just telling you something. It's not in the text right here, but it's all across the Scripture. What happens to the guy who doesn't bail off the ship? He dies. There's no doubt about it. He is dead as a hammer. you got to bail off the ship. Now, is it easy? No. Is it scary? Yes. Are you going to want to do it? Absolutely not. Are you going to cling to the very last second before you let go and jump? Yes. But you got to engage in the process. God will call you every time. When you engage with His promise, there's going to become a moment in every storm, in every situation where you're going to have to get down to the nitty-gritty. You can talk, 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 talk about how much you trust God, how much you love God, how much you believe God. But when it comes down to it, you got to put your money where your mouth is. You're going to have to jump off the ship. You understand? You're going to have to do that. Now listen to me. You're the crazy fanatical people who got in your car and floated all the way here tonight. I mean, I'm seriously wondering if we was even going to have church. I should know better by now. Don't worry. If there'd have been two of y'all, I'd be screaming just as loud. And they'd be going, well, it's just two of us, man. You got to engage. Belief is action. I get so frustrated with this one issue so many times. People under the pretense of of spirituality and belief and trust and wisdom and knowledge and all these things. And then when it comes down to it, they lock up. 
They just like it. They're like one of them goats that just freezes up and falls over and can't do nothing. It drives me crazy. Listen, you're going to have to, I'm just telling you, faith is action. You're going to have to respond in faith. You're going to have to walk. You got to move, not by sight, but by faith. You got to go. You're going to have to jump. You got to face the reality that you're in. My goodness. Last Wednesday night, I taught out of Matthew chapter 22. And man, I had such a great time working on that text about the marriage feast. But what really blessed my heart is in the process of putting all that together, I got so enamored with the previous chapter. Because I kept thinking about the fact that here is Jesus in the final week of his life. We're in the Passion Week. He's already rode the colt into Jerusalem. They've already waved the palm branches. I mean, we're hunkered down and moving to Easter. Jesus is at the very end. And then here he tells these parables. I mean, at this moment, you're thinking to yourself, Lord, we're down to just little slivers of time left. Every single millisecond is so precious. And in Matthew chapter 21, he tells a parable about two sons. He says that this man who owns a vineyard has two sons. And he tells his sons to go out and work in the vineyard. And he says one son initially says that uh, he's not going to go out. And then he changes his mind. And he ends up going out and working in the vineyard. And the other son says, oh yeah, dad, I'll do it, no problem. I'll go out and work. And then he never follows through with what he promised to do. And then Jesus poses the question, which son obeyed the father? Then he moves right into another parable. And he talks about a landowner. And he says that this landowner leases to these wicked tenants. And he says that the master of the house plants the vineyard, but then he leases it to these tenants. So it's this ready-made vineyard. These tenants come in, and he goes off to another country. But while he's away, he sends his servants back to the vineyard to reap some of the harvest, to get some of the fruit from the, the land. And the Bible says that these wicked tenants beat his servants. And so he sent some more. And Mark tells us some more detail and says that then, then they killed him. And then it says that the landowner, the master, sends his son and they kill his son. And then Jesus poses the question at the end of that parable and he says, Now what should the master do? Now what do those two parables have in common? Both of those parables are communicating the importance of doing rightly. They, they, the first one is communicating in essence that when you, when you promise God you're going to do something, you need to do it. And even if you didn't initially do it, you should 
be obedient. Being obedient at the end is better than not being obedient at all. But what's bad is if you promise to do something and never follow through. If you're a slacker. And then the next one is teaching the principle that when you're doing something and the master says to you, hey, I want you to participate with me in what you're doing or I'm, I want to shift a little bit, you know, what the activity that you're involved in is all about. It's about action. It's about working. It's about being diligent in the things we ought to be doing while the master is away. Now, Jesus gives both of these parables right before he goes to the cross. Now, do you think that by chance, Jesus might have been giving us a foreshadow of the anchor of reality? That Jesus is saying, now listen to me. I'm about to go away to a far and distant country. And while I'm away, you need to make sure that you're doing the things you ought to be doing. And you need to make sure that when you're doing something, that you're responding rightly to the people that I'm sending and putting into your life. In other words, what he's saying is, is that your activity matters. It matters. The what you do matters, whether you're doing the right thing or whether you're doing the wrong thing. But here's the thing. The moral of both of those stories is you need to be doing, doing the right thing. That not doing nothing, doing nothing is the wrong thing, just like doing the wrong thing is the wrong thing. You need to be in reality. You need to realize that faith is about realizing there's a moment you got to jump off the ship. Some of y'all don't know how to swim. Metaphorically speaking. And your worst fear maybe is what has come true or what you've had to face or I'm just simply telling you this you can talk all you want to talk we can have all the pseudo spiritual conversations you want to have but where the rubber meets the road What do you do when we're sitting in the waiting room and the doctor comes in and says, the baby didn't make it? All your lip service about trust it's payday right there. It's payday. What are you going to do when you walk into the room and your perfectly healthy young child 
is laying in a bed on a ventilator. What are you going to do? I'm telling you. You better, you better have something to anchor to. You start walking with people through storms like that. I'm talking about they don't, go, not, they don't just go away. You, it's not just this moment where you have to take in the, the, the magnitude of the situation and then 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 2 hours, 6 hours later it goes away. Oh no, it don't go away then. No, no, it lingers for days, for 14 days, day after day after day. You're sitting in the waiting room and I see you a day after day. They're still in a coma. Day after day, you're thinking about the little casket. Day after day, you can't stop playing that moment out of your mind. Over and over and over, it's storm, it's storm, it's storm. I'm talking about the real deal storms. You better have something to anchor to. Because I know what that Bible says. And it says crystal clear. In this world, you will have tribulation. Not that you might. Not that you could. But that you will. And furthermore, the degree to which you obey and follow Christ... I'm just telling you what the Bible says. The higher the reality is that you're going to find yourself in a crippling, debilitating storm. I've never seen God use mightily. Never. A person who lived a namby-pamby, smooth sailing, easy faith life. Never seen it. You show me somebody who has been beat down time after time after time after time. And I'll show you somebody that you want to be in community with. I'll show you somebody that you can learn from. I'll show you somebody that you can iron sharpens iron from. I'll show you somebody who's not going to bail when the going gets tough, but somebody who's going to hunker down. Those are the kinds of people that God uses mightily. If we've learned anything from studying the life of Paul, it's that. And so if it's true for him, it's true for me, it's true for you. So don't leave here tonight freaked out. Leave here tonight and say, praise the Lord I got four anchors that I can tether my life to. And if the entire world comes unglued, I'll be rock solid. I'll be rock solid. Because God will keep his promise to the letter by which he promised it. Every time. Every time. And when you get to the other side, you'll glorify him evermore. Here's, here's what's not in Acts chapter 27. Here's what I want to know. I want to know what the conversation was when all them salty, wet rats rolled up on that beach alive. And they did a head count. And when they said 274, 
275, 276. Praise the Lord. I guarantee you there were folks getting saved like crazy on that beach. Amen, they were. It was revival time. Because God is good. He's faithful. So let's don't live in fantasy. Let's live in reality. Let's be prepared to tether our lives to the things that are going to hold us steady. And we're going to walk. We're going to walk. And when it comes time to jump, hey, we'll lock arms together. Maybe you can swim. Maybe I can't swim. Vice versa, and we're going to jump. We'll grab a board or whatever we got, and we'll just ride across them rocks until we hit the sand. And when we get there, we're going to rejoice. Amen? See? God didn't promise nobody to kill me. But he said, Tony... Don't be afraid of some fool who can only kill your body. Amen. Amen. It's all perspective. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you.